Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Four years ago, Google dropped its bid for a Pentagon contract after thousands of employees objected. But that was before Russia invaded Ukraine. On today's battlefield, software is king and Silicon Valley wants back in. And this month marks 80 years since the release of Bambi, a pioneering bit of Disney animation. What people seem to remember most from the film is a particularly harrowing scene that, it would appear, is a collective delusion. First up, though. Today marks one year since the Taliban toppled the American-backed government and seized control of Afghanistan. It was a speedy, almost bloodless victory that surprised many. Um, There were predictions that Taliban would take over the country. I think anybody predicted that there would be this pace of momentum, this pace of... And in the early days of the transition, the world was gripped by news coming out of Kabul. There were images of crowds swarming the airport desperate to flee. And stories circulated of Afghans selling their children to make ends meet. This month, Afghanistan has been in headlines again after the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahri, was killed by an American drone strike. But in recent months, the country has largely been overlooked by the world. As the spotlight has shifted to the war in Ukraine and the prospect of a global recession, all the while it has plunged ever deeper into crisis. The new Taliban is behaving a lot like the old Taliban, which ran Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001. It was total theocratic tyranny. Avantika Chukoti is an international correspondent for The Economist. The Ministry of Virtue and Vice has been reconstituted and its morality police are out in full force. I've spoken to a bunch of people who tell me about being harassed for men trimming their beards or women for just going out without a male escort. Press freedom is so heavily restricted in the country now that despite everything that's going on, sometimes the cricket scores become front page news. There's also fears the country is harboring terrorists once more. The thing is, a lot of people are suffering, but for some parts of the population at least, they're actually better off than they were a year ago. That's really surprising to hear, and we'll come back to that later. But let's be clear, for most people, at least, the situation is pretty bad. Yeah, and this is the second way in which the situation can be described, and that's sort of from an economic lens. So the World Bank estimates that output in Afghanistan shrank by a third between September and December last year in year-on-year terms. Just the fact that there's new restrictions on aid, that there's been sanctions applied, that Afghanistan has been completely frozen out of the international banking system, that's really brought economic activity to a halt. 
At the same time, inflation is soaring. So it reached about 50% year on year in June for a small set of basic household goods. And that really is boosting poverty. At the moment, only 5% of families have enough to eat. There's widespread poverty and families that were solidly middle class a year ago are now skipping meals. And which Afghans are bearing the worst of this? So women are undoubtedly the worst off. Their freedoms are being totally pummeled. In the last two decades, under the US-backed government, they'd got used to a better life. So female literacy rates, for example, more than doubled between 2000 and 2018, albeit they only reached about 30%. But you had this new generation of educated females who were getting jobs as doctors, as journalists, as lawyers. They were starting their own businesses. And in recent months, I've been speaking to one woman in Kabul. She has a degree, and now she's terrified of reprisal, and she's basically confined to her home. I lost my job and the business I was working in shut down. Life has gotten harder for both me and other people. There are no employment available here. There is no income for families. However... In March, the Taliban backtracked on their promise to let girls back into secondary school. And at the same time, they've been rolling out stricter and stricter rules for women. So now they've said that women should only leave home when necessary. This is all being applied with varying degrees of strictness around the country. But in some places, there's stories of women who've stepped out of line being brutally punished by Taliban fighters. That is grim. But you said earlier there are some parts of the population that are doing better than they were at this time last year, right? Yes, and this is the surprising thing. So there are a group of Afghans that are better off now. And these are people who live in rural parts of the country that were at the front lines of the conflict. So in provinces like Helmand and Kandahar, they're enjoying security that they haven't seen for years. Crisis Group, which is a think tank, has been crunching the numbers. They're putting out a big report. They shared some of the results with me ahead of time. And they found that the number of violent incidents in Afghanistan in the 10 months to mid-July, so that's things like armed clashes, suicide bombings, they were down 87% compared with the same period a year earlier. Even in the north and the east of the country where you have, for example, a local affiliate of the Islamic State staging really, really horrible, violent attacks, even there... Altogether, violence is down really markedly. And it's really hard to overstate just how important peace is for these people. So in these rural communities, things have actually improved under Taliban rule. Yeah, I mean, maybe the way to put it is that aside from security, nothing much has changed for these communities for decades. So if you're in a really rural part of Afghanistan that was at the center of the war, They never got aid in the last 20 years. All the development you saw in Kabul, sort of skyscrapers, tarmac roads, imported cars, that never reached them. And a lot of them, particularly in the south of the country, which is the Taliban heartland, their socially conservative rules have always existed. Women are used to covering up. They're used to staying at home. So what's really happened is that the peace has allowed them to rebuild their lives. They're sowing crops. They're fixing up their homes. And again, this is showing up in the economic data. The World Bank does these pretty regular surveys of household heads, and they found that the share of these household heads who say that they are in work has actually picked up slightly in rural regions now compared to two years ago. In cities, that has ticked down, but in rural areas, just the fact that you have security is allowing people to get back to work and build a better life. 
But these benefits seem contingent on stable security. Do you see that situation lasting? So this is a big question everybody's asking. You know, when you have winners and losers in a country like this, you're setting it up for conflict. And you're seeing that Afghanistan today is a very different place than where it was 20 years ago. Women, for example, they're unwilling to live with the Taliban's bigotry. You've seen small but very brave protests taking place in recent months. The economic collapse is also stirring discontent among those educated middle-class Afghans who've suddenly been plunged into poverty. They blame the Taliban for economic mismanagement. They also, frankly, blame the foreign powers for cutting them off. And I guess the worry is that that will set the stage for further violence going forward. All right, Avantika, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, John. And in the most recent episode of our sister podcast, The Economist Asks, my colleague Anne McElvoy spoke to Philip Bobbitt, a national security expert, about the war on terror and how to define victory in 21st century warfare. It's a fascinating interview, and I highly recommend it. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. For decades after the Second World War, and throughout the Cold War, the United States enjoyed technological superiority over its military rivals. But that advantage has long been shrinking. China's stepping up of its military exercises near Taiwan in recent weeks, as well as Russia's invasion of Ukraine, are a reminder to the United States that it needs to up its game. And to do that, it's turning again to the place where it first nurtured its superiority. One of the first people I spoke to for this piece was Steve Blank, Stanford professor, who has a fascinating talk titled The Secret History of Silicon Valley. Arjun Ramani is our global business and economics correspondent. And that secret history is really that of the role the Department of Defense played in seeding many of the Valley's early technologies from radar to semiconductors. Protecting what matters most is the mission that matters most. At Lockheed Martin, we understand what's at stake. Lockheed Martin, which is one of the biggest defense contractors now, once built their missiles in Sunnyvale, a city in the south of the valley. And the engineering department at Stanford University also benefited greatly from defense research funding. But the Vietnam War changed this relationship. There were protests at the university that led to a ban on classified research and military recruitment on campus was also ended. And traditional defense contractors, they gained a strong moat over procurement from the military. And so this deterred uh, venture capitalists, who were primarily based out of the Bay Area at the time, from investing into new defense tech startups. So now that's created a problem for the Pentagon. The traditional weapons makers, they, they lack top-flight software programmers. Silicon Valley still has plenty of software engineers, as we know, but many of them are re reluctant to work on things like defense tech. A great example of this is in 2018, 
thousands of Google employees uh, protested against Google's potential bid for a big cloud contract with the Pentagon. They also protested around that time against a new artificial intelligence program with the Defense Department. And so Google actually ended up leaving both of those programs. But now this type of reluctance seems to be changing across the valley. Tell us about that. Why is it changing and why now? So there are two big forces at play. The first is geopolitical risk. That's coming from both China, and we see that, of course, with tensions over Taiwan at the moment, and also Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which showed that a war involving a major nuclear power was still possible. That's actually making defense look a lot more moral in the eyes of engineers. And the second big force is the nature of battlefield technology is changing. Software like artificial intelligence is playing a bigger role, for example, with precision drone strikes. And so both these things are increasing the, the market for defense technology companies. So the DOD's $140 billion annual procurement budget is growing. And that's a huge pile that both big tech and startup investors are eyeing with, with desire. And we see the numbers booming elsewhere. If you look at venture capital funding for American aerospace and defense startups, that's actually tripled since 2019 to over $10 billion. So these are just a few examples, but they suggest that this division between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon is starting to close once again. And Arjun, we've talked a lot on the show about the increasing use of technology in warfare. Can you tell us what sorts of developments Silicon Valley is getting involved in? Yeah, I think the main shift is that software, in particular artificial intelligence, is finding its way into weapon systems. If you think about how warfare is traditionally conducted, the DOD will contract with companies like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon, and they'll buy things like aircraft, tanks, and other battle units. They're decked out with advanced technology, but they're not really connected with each other. Last year, as an example of how things are changing, Israel demonstrated how one might connect smaller units in, in a battlefield setting and deployed what, what's called a drone swarm in Gaza. And the Pentagon hopes to do similar things where they'll perhaps procure cheaper battle units like drones and connect them in real time. And so they've actually launched a, a vision for what this might look like called the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System, which enables data sharing among sensors and battle units in real time. And so in general, I think we're seeing a shift where warfighting is becoming increasingly software first. And so even if not all Silicon Valley workers are on board, it seems like company bosses really don't want to miss out on this opportunity, especially considering the tech sector is facing some economic headwinds these days. Yeah, I think so. It's really good news for software providers. The military budget is huge, and importantly, even in recessions, it doesn't fall as much as the the broader market. So big tech already equips the armed forces and law enforcement with things like cloud storage, databases, app support, but now it's moving closer to the battlefield. So Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, and Oracle, all four large technology companies, are expected to divvy up a $9 billion contract over five years to operate the Pentagon's joint warfighting cloud capability. And last year, Microsoft was awarded a $22 billion contract from the U.S. Army to supply its HoloLens augmented reality headset to simulate battles for training for up to 10 years. And in June of this year, Alphabet launched a new unit, Google Public Sector, which will compete for the DoD's Battle Networks contracts. So this is a departure from the company's earlier Pentagon-shy stance. Now, you mentioned big firms, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft. 
What about startups? I assume they're getting involved as well. Yes, definitely. So in January, Anduril, one of the firms I spoke with, secured a contract to build anti-drone defenses worth nearly $1 billion over 10 years. So that's one of the largest contracts that uh, a startup has been able to secure. They were actually only founded in 2017. In February this year, another startup, Skydio, won a contract to sell the U.S. Army $100 million worth of drones. And in July, uh, C3.ai, a software firm that went public in 2020, was picked by defense giant Raytheon to develop AI for a long-range precision targeting system. So is this firmly a new direction for Silicon Valley, a new sort of military-industrial complex? So while there are signs of change, it's far from assured that it will continue in a meaningful way. My big picture sense is that defense primes will maintain their dominance in the market for some time, though newer firms will slowly but steadily grow their presence. As an example, so far, little appears to have come out of the big DoD program from 2015, led by Apple to develop battle-ready wearables. But there are also reasons to believe that the obstacles will be overcome. As mentioned earlier, the interests of both tech and the Pentagon are starting to align. So America has long carried out simulations of a war with China over Taiwan. And for a long time, China came out on top. But at the end of 2020, America finally defeated China in one of these so-called war games. And it turns out that one of the key parts of this victory was the rollout of clever software-enabled systems, like the joint command and control system mentioned earlier, that requires software from some of these newer tech firms. All right, Arjun, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. Eighty years ago this month, a film was released that would deeply upset generations of children. Just like that, the mother of an unbearably cute fawn named Bambi was killed. It's a jarring and memorable moment in cinema, and yet that scene from the 1942 Disney film might not be what you remember. That is always cited. What's the most traumatizing moment in children's entertainment? It's the death of Bambi's mother. Nicholas Barber writes about culture for The Economist. The interesting thing about it, re-watching it, is you don't actually get to see Bambi's mother dying. I think people remember it. People talk about how they saw the scene and how upsetting it was, but the film doesn't actually show you Bambi's mother being killed. I have to say it's been a great many years since I've seen it. What What is in the film? What do we see? It's quite a long way into the film. The film is quite short. It's only about 70 minutes long, and Bambi's mother isn't killed until 40 minutes into it. So that's another thing which, again, I think it's a bit of a false memory that, no, that doesn't happen at the beginning. We've actually got to know them quite well by this point. But then 40 minutes in, they're in a snowy meadow. Uh, it's late winter. They're just enjoying the countryside as they have done for the rest of the film. Bambi's mother cocks her head. She realises something's amiss. Bambi, quick, the thicket. They both race off uh, back towards the woods. And we hear a gunshot. We don't see who fires the gunshot. We don't see the bullet connecting. We just hear a gunshot. Then Bambi makes it back to their little shelter in the thicket and says, We made it, Mother! We... Suddenly realises she's not there. And then there's the heartbreaking moment. Mother! And then Bambi's dad, who is the mighty stag, the prince of the forest, looms up in silhouette and just says, Your mother can't be with you anymore. And that's it. That's a weird thing. That's the end of the scene, really. 
<laughs> the strange thing is that then cuts to another scene. It's springtime, a song starts, all the animals and all the flowers are all starting singing about how it's spring and they're all falling in love. And Bambi's mother is never mentioned again. It's quite startling because I think with most films like this, they allow us to process it during the film. So they have some kind of poignant last words and they have a, a final farewell. But in this case, no, that's it. She's gone. And it's quite powerful. I think that's probably why it hits us so hard, because the film doesn't let us get over it. But the weird thing is the animals have got over it. The animals don't seem to care at all. For them, it's just part of life. You know, that's what happens. People die. On you go. This was obviously 80 years ago, so it's before the rules were written, but it breaks all the rules of how you deal with the parents' death in children's entertainment. And so that that lack of sentimentality, the lack of mawkishness, is not really what we associate with Disney, which normally has a, a firm hand on all the all the emotions. It's quite matter of fact, really. It doesn't have a big story about overcoming adversity, beating villains and anything like that. It just chronicles a year in the life of this fawn. There's no particular adventure. There are exciting events, but it's not like he goes on a journey or anything like that. He just grows up for a year and, oh, oh by the way, his mother dies <laughs> along the way. It doesn't have a villain. We don't see the hunters who shot Bambi's mother. We don't see any human beings in the film at all. We hear about man, but we don't see man at all. And again, I think that's, it gives the film a strange edge because it doesn't let us human beings off the hook. It's not like we think, oh, well, obviously Cruella de Vil is a monstrous cartoon villain or Captain Hook or Maleficent, nothing to do with us. It's just, well, it was man who was responsible. And it's not claiming that man is evil or anything. It's just like, yep, that's just a fact of life. So there isn't a, a singular evil character, but humans do kind of come in for being on the bad side. Yes, it's interesting. And then later on, I mean, the most traumatizing scene in it now is the climactic wildfire. The entire forest goes up in smoke. And of course, it's weirdly close to all the, the news footage that we've had to watch in this dangerously hot summer that we're living through now. But it's, it's quite powerful inferno scene. And again, man is responsible. But again, we don't see man causing the fire. What we see is a campsite. There's no one at it. There's an unattended campfire. The wind blows, the flames from the campfire blow onto a tree, and then that soon spreads and the whole forest is ablaze. And again, it's not saying, oh, there was an evil villain behind this. They deliberately burnt down the forest or they were trying to kill all the animals or anything like that. It just says, well, this was just carelessness. And that, there's kind of horrible truth in there. It's quite gut-wrenching to watch it. And so 80 years on, why do you reckon that this has stuck so much in, in people's memory, in people's hearts, including false memories of what exactly we saw? Well, it is a powerful film with those powerful scenes in it. It's also, it must be said, an absolutely adorable film. The animals are cute. The animators did an amazing job of making them seem like real animals and moving like real animals at the same time as making them seem very human. I don't think that had been really done in that way before. It's an early film. It's only the fifth full-length cartoon that Disney made. And Walt was obviously trying to prove that this could be an art form. You know, it's something to compare to opera, to ballets. It's got music all the way through it, different animation techniques. So for me, what we should try and remember is that it is just a fantastic film. I'm not saying that's why it's remembered. I think probably it's remembered more because A, the animals are so sweet, and B, we know that one of them gets killed. Well, thank you for helping me relive some of that childhood trauma, Nicholas. <laughs> You're very welcome. I hope you get over it. I've just about got over it. 
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcast at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.